You're listening to Recording to Sam, episode 113. folks welcome back to according to sam this is episode 113 thank you so much for listening um so i got in a car accident at the end of last year i was hit from behind and uh totaled my car was hit pretty hard 21 year old girl in a ford fiesta just ran up behind me but i ended up going to the doctor getting an MRI to, to check out uh, if there was any damage to my back or neck. And uh, in that MRI, I found out that there was a uh, growth on my left kidney. And um, the doctor who was seeing me for the accident referred me to my primary care physician to get the lump checked out and um, after going through an ultrasound, a CAT scan, finally identifying uh, the uh, growth on my kidney, uh, referred to a urologist and the urologist, uh, without even doing a biopsy, was like, it doesn't matter if it's malignant or not, uh, we need to cut it out. So I'm scheduled for a surgery next Tuesday, and I ask for you guys uh, to be in prayer that everything uh, works out. Uh, she, uh, my doctor, the urologist who's doing the surgery is very very uh good and qualified and she assures me that everything's going to be fine and i'm confident that everything's going to be fine but i'm having that procedure on next tuesday so i'm probably going to pre-record uh the podcast for next week and uh maybe for even the week after that, who knows if uh, it's going to take me uh, longer to be fully recovered or even, you know, to the point to where I'm able to do the podcast, but who knows. Um, so just wanted to make you guys aware of that and, and ask, you know, for your, for your prayers. And, um, and what I want to do in this podcast, I want to get back into talking about the economy, inflation, uh, you know, what's going on in, um, our economy and, uh, with inflation and not only our economy, the, uh, global economy, I'll tell you about some things going on in, in protests and uprisings in other parts of the world, uh, that are centered on the lack of fuel and, uh, inflation and, um, in the last podcast, what played the president of the United States predicting food shortages in the United States. Uh, but you're going to start seeing food shortages in other places before it really takes hold in the United States. But it's coming to the United States, but you're already seeing it take places, take place in other uh, parts of the world. So we'll talk about that. Uh, but this first clip that I want to play today um, is the spokesperson for the president. We started with the president last week. Today we're going to start with his uh, spokesperson, uh, Jen Psaki. And uh, this was a comments that she made yesterday about the recent inflation numbers that came out uh, today. 
and uh, she was trying to, you know, soften the blow, anticipating that the inflation numbers uh, were going to be bad. And take a listen to what she said. So because of the actions we've taken to address uh, Putin, the Putin price hike, we are in a better place than we Putin were last month. Um, but we expect March CPA, CPI headline inflation to be extraordinarily elevated due to Putin's price hike. Mm-hmm. And we expect Putin's a large difference hike. between core and headline inflation reflecting the global disruptions in energy and food markets. So core infl- inflation doesn't include energy and food prices. Uh, headline inflation does. And of course, we know that core inflation, you know, energy, the impact of energy, of course, on oil prices, gas prices, we expect that to uh, continue to reflect what we've seen uh, the increases be over the course of this invasion. And just as an example, since President Putin's military buildup accelerated in January, average gas prices are up more than 80 cents. Most of the increase in, uh, occurred in the month of March, and at times gas prices were more than a dollar above pre-invasion level. So that roughly 25 percent increase in gas Gas prices will drive tomorrow's inflation reading. And certainly it's not a surprise to us, but we certainly think it will be reflected. So she continues to talk about uh, pre-invasion numbers, post-invasion numbers. It's all Russia's fault, the Putin price hike. We talked about this in the last podcast. And I'm probably going to be doing a podcast about this issue um, with my friend Andrew from the Andrew uh, for America podcast. Um, so don't worry, Andrew, that I'm covering this issue again in, in this podcast. There's so much to cover and we'll talk about um, this stuff in a podcast together once I'm on the men's. Uh, but, you know, it's. It's the same issue that we were talking about in the last podcast. It's all uh, because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine that is causing all of this inflation, all of these economic woes. And uh, the Biden administration wants to use Russia as a scapegoat, not take any responsibility uh, for any of their policies contributing to the inflation and they want to put it all on Putin. And um, the question is, is it going to work? It's not working. We, we've already seen the numbers. And if it was working, you would see Biden's poll numbers. And the poll numbers uh, for Democrats, their approval numbers reflected, uh, you know, in the fact that uh, that people were buying that this is Putin's fault and Russia's fault and not uh, policies from the Democrats causing this, people understand this. And you see it in the poll numbers, in the approval rating of both the Democratic Party and the President of the United States, who is a Democrat. It is their policies that are driving inflation and the Fed policies which are driving in inflation. And Biden's Treasury Secretary was Obama's, was the chair of the Federal Reserve under Obama. So Janet Yellen, who was the chair of the Federal Reserve after Ben Bernanke, implemented much of this policy. And now Joe Biden has brought her on to run Treasury. I mean, it's unprecedented. Uh, So it's if you understand this stuff, it's a direct relationship to uh, the policy of Democrats for 
over 20 years now, and not just Democrats, Republicans. You can't just blame uh, Democrats because uh, George Bush, during the uh, eight years of his administration, ran up the debt uh, with all the foreign wars and um, um, mostly the foreign wars and the war on terrorism and uh, creating new uh agencies like the uh department of homeland security and and others all of that costs money and they ran up the debt um over the last 20 years both democrats and republicans and it is the policy of the united states not anything that russia um has done the policy of the united states congress and the federal reserve that are driving this and i'm going to prove that to you and I have proven that uh, to you and and talked about this before, but we're going to talk about it again today. Now, uh, these numbers that Jen Psaki was talking about yesterday, the consumer price index numbers, CPI numbers, uh, did come out this morning. And here's a clip about those numbers. Take a listen. Right to Cheryl Cassoni, we go with the numbers. Cheryl. We're pretty much coming in with these hot numbers, and we thought we were going to get this, Maria. Year over year, the expectation was 8.4. We came in 8.5% year over year. 8.5%, that is the annual rate. This is the highest that we have seen uh, since January of 1982. This is over a 40-year high. 40-year high. I love it. Uh, when uh, you go back to the debate with Mitt Romney and... Uh, Barack Obama in 2012 when uh, Obama says, Governor Romney, uh, you said Russia was our biggest geopolitical threat and the 1980s called and they want their foreign policy back. Well, I, it looks like the 1980s called and they want their economic policy back too. <laughs> The 1980s is calling. They not only want their foreign policy back, they want their economic policy back, too, because it, it seems like we are regressing back to not only 1980s foreign policy, we're back to 1980s economic policy. 8.5%. That is the annual rate. This is the highest that we have seen uh, since January of 1982. This is over a 40-year high for consumer prices. Okay, this is March CPI. Uh, taking a look at different uh, breakdowns of the... Uh, let me go to the core, the year over year for the core, 6.5% for the core that uh, we were looking so the core. I don't know if you understood what uh, Jin Saki uh, was saying when she was explaining this, but uh, the, the headline numbers and the core numbers, the core numbers don't include fuel and food. <laughs> the most important things that you need to, to live. I mean, Take away um, the the housing and uh, which if you are looking at the housing market right now and you're trying to get into the housing market, you know how ridiculous the housing market is. But that's part of the core numbers. But you remove the fuel and the food numbers, and that's how you get the core numbers, which are ridiculous. How, I mean, does it, anyone who is in the middle class who is trying to raise a family and uh, pay prices on anything? Now, all of our goods and services, they arrive to us. They're shipped to us on, uh, on trucks or planes that use fuel. So the... The fuel number, 
in taking that out to uh, achieve this core number is kind of ridiculous in, in my point of view. But that's what she's talking about when she's talking about the core numbers. It's removing the price of fuel and food out of the inflation numbers. Okay, this is March CPI. Uh, taking a look at different uh, breakdowns of the, uh, let me go to the core, the year over year for the core, 6.5% for the core. The, uh, we were looking for 6.6%. We came in at 6.5%. So that's a little bit uh, weaker than expected. Uh, but again, these are numbers that we have not seen for the core numbers uh, since 1982. Let me go into the release and give you some other uh, numbers as we go through this data right now. Uh, in particular, let's talk about the month over month number. We got a 1.2% jump month over month. That is in line. That is a 17-year high, 1.2% uh, for the month of March. Uh, and we actually, that's a little bit, that's a lot stronger than what we saw the month prior. Uh, now- so the invasion, why, why in the month of March did the numbers jump 1% for month over month? <laughs> why? If, you know, the, I guess the, the invasion happened at the end of February. So that is what contributed to, okay, so 1% um, higher in the month of March. And, and you, that I, you can, uh, I would say, uh, contribute to the invasion of uh, Russia into Ukraine. Uh, that 1% inflation, I guess, I mean, you were already dealing with it. Uh, it was 7.5% in February and then now 8.5%. So it jumped 1.2% in, in the month that uh, Russia has been in Ukraine. I guess you can uh, attribute that a little bit to to what's going on in, in Eastern Europe, but you're already dealing with 7.5% before the in- invasion. Um, and, you know... In the month of March, that increases a full percentage point. Um, actually, 1.2% is what it increased in the month of March. Are you going to expect another 1% increase in April and another 1% increase in May and another 1% increase in June? I mean, what is being done to slow this rise in inflation? That seems to be um, out of control, you know, <laughs> that, uh, that you have no. Now, I know that uh, the Biden administration is, is doing things to try to uh, alleviate the, some of the fuel costs. Um, I don't know what he's doing about food. And there's this other issue with food that we're going to talk about here in, in a moment. But I mean, this, this is very, very serious. This is very serious what we're dealing with. Let's look more over month it. number. We got a 1.2% jump month over month. That is in line. That is a 17-year high, 1.2% uh, for the month of March. Uh, and we actually, that's a little bit, that's a lot stronger than what we saw the month prior. Uh, now going to stripping out food and energy month over month, a 0.3% jump which is actually weaker than expected. But again, you know, that, that's stripping out food and energy. What people are paying at the grocery store and the gas station is yeah, it makes really no all sense. that matters. I mean, uh, right the, now, the core number, the it, it, I mean, why, why even there? report on that? The- why even report on stripping out food and energy? <laughs> Who cares? It doesn't matter to consumers. Jump, 
which is actually weaker than expected. But again, you know, that's stripping out food and energy. What people are paying at the grocery store and the gas station is really all that matters. Uh, right now, going into the report and looking at a few things in here, let's talk about some of the increases, the 12, where we're seeing some of the strength as far as categories go. Uh, what they are saying right now, they're seeing in particular the biggest jumps we saw, gasoline. We knew that, 25% month-over-month jump for gasoline. Shelter, uh, food, those were the three largest contributors uh, to all of the, to the increase that they saw. In particular, the gasoline index itself, even though prices jumped 25% at the retail level, 18.3% jump uh, for March. Now, over half of the all items increased there. The energy component, every single energy component index actually increased, uh, Maria. So that's uh, something to talk about about there. Uh, now looking at some of the other jumps that we're seeing here, I, I talked about this before, food at home and food away from home, okay? We saw a 10% jump uh, for food prices, and that is food at home. That is what people are paying uh, on their in their uh, in their homes or paying at the grocery store. Food away from home, going out to eat, a 6.9% jump. Total energy cost, if you take everything combined, a 32% jump. Uh, gasoline, again, a year-over-year increase, year-over-year increase for gasoline, 48%, okay? And get this, fuel oil, a 70% jump. That's a year-over-year number. I'm giving you different numbers, folks, and I don't want to confuse you too much. Year-over-year, new vehicles, the price is jumping 12%. Used cars and trucks, year-over-year, jumping 35%. We also saw utility prices jumping year-over-year. Again, a 21% increase there, Maria. So going through, again, uh, a few of the things that we're talking about as far as the different breakdown. I'm going to go through this one more time make sure everybody's on the same page here. 1.2% jump month over month. That is a 17-year high. 8.5% jump year over year for the headline number. This is over a 40-year high. We haven't seen these numbers since January uh, of 1982. Uh, and again, core month over month, a jump of 0.3%, a little bit better than expected. But the core and number again, is stupid. It doesn't make any sense, especially when you listen to all of these other numbers uh, reflecting the prices that consumers, families, people are paying for to live, to live, essentially. Um, here's another clip. Um, I want you to take a listen to this is today. Um, and they're breaking down these CPI numbers as well. Take a listen. Whether you're filling your gas tank or the grocery cart. Prices have gone up there. Overall grocery bill has gone up. From paying the rent to dining out. We used to eat out like once a week or something, and we hardly ever do that anymore. Inflation is taking a big bite out of Americans' everyday budgets and savings. The latest report out this morning is expected to show an 8.4% spike from a year ago. That would be the highest since December 1981. It was 8.5. The Lost Ark was number one at the box office. Ronald Reagan was president, and unemployment was pushing 10%. But the causes of inflation today are far different. A post-pandemic economic boom. The global supply chain still struggling with China in another COVID lockdown. And the war in Ukraine sending food and energy prices even higher. We went into Listen to that. This is, this is today um, that are doing this report, the Today Show. I don't know. I think that's ABC. Um, anyway, they listen to they give three reasons for inflation. Take a listen to these three reasons. A booming economy is is what 
they say here on the Today Show is one of the reasons for the inflation and these CPI numbers, a booming economy. Also, of course, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and supply supply chain shortages. Those are the three reasons. They don't say anything about spending. They don't say anything about uh, more money in circulation uh, and the national debt and borrowing and deficit spending. They don't say anything about that. They give you three reasons for uh, inflation, and the three reasons are, let's listen again. But the causes of inflation today are far different. A post-pandemic economic boom. The global supply chain still struggling with China in another COVID lockdown. And the war in Ukraine sending food and energy prices even higher. That's the reason. Those three reasons. Supply chain shortages, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and a post-pandemic economic boom is what they just said on that report. That's the reason for the inflation. That's not the reason for the inflation. It's 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 insane. Then in this same report, they address the Federal Reserve and Fed policy on inflation. You just gave us three reasons for inflation. You don't even mention the Federal Reserve. But later in the same report, they say this. Take a listen. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve is trying to attack inflation with the first interest rate hike in three years and as many as six more to come. There was an interest rate uh, hike last uh, month that um, I saw after I did my last podcast. And it was, uh, you know, very incremental uh, rate hike. And the and there's planning on six more. But the Fed has to tread lightly. And I'm going to explain to you here in a moment why the the Fed has to tread lightly, because if they start raising interest rates too high, then that's going to kick off a recession. And so they have to do it incrementally. But these incremental raises of interest rates are doing very little to affect inflation, because the reason for inflation is is monetary policy. The reason for inflation is more dollars in circulation, more spending, and the the artificially low interest rates at the same time that the Fed, they started this policy after the 2008 financial crash. So they uh, started to do the quantitative easing, uh, infusing uh, dollars uh, onto bank ledgers, um, and uh, they kept the interest rates artificially low to encourage people uh, to borrow, which they believed would uh, would help, um, you know, keep the economy booming or keep the economy going. Which there was uh, a boom in, in two thousand nine. Um, Wall Street versus Main Street. Talked to you about this before. The policy that Ben Bernanke and, and Obama did in 2009, it did bring a boom to Wall Street. Not necessarily to Main Street. Main Street's been struggling since 2009, and Wall Street's been booming. Uh, that's, that's why I, mean, I, I really wish that I could make you understand how bad Obama was for the country. I mean, Yes, Bush was bad 
and Bush started stupid wars and ignored uh, intelligence that could have prevented 9-11 and ran up the debt and ignored the housing crisis. And Bush was was terrible. But Obama ran on a platform to change course from Bush on radical change, change you can believe in was his campaign uh, promise. And he made uh, tons of promises uh, about the economy when the economy was in shambles and had just been destroyed by the uh, financial crisis. And then Obama comes on, you know, with, you know, all of this, he, he knows the, the situation. He knows the stakes as he's running in 2008, that the economy's in shambles. Uh, you know, I'm going to have all of these issues to deal with on day one when I'm sworn in. Obama's running, first runs against Hillary Clinton and then beats her in the Democratic primary because Democrats wanted a change. Of course, we didn't want to go back to Hillary Clinton. And then uh, Obama wins the nomination and he runs against McCain and the uh, country um, overwhelmingly wants a change, of course, and they elect this <laughs> this young black guy, first black president, uh, young, wet behind the ears, hasn't even been in politics for a full decade that everybody puts their energy around this guy and, and hope in him that he's going to change course. He understands the stakes. I'm going to be dealing with two wars. I'm going to be dealing with an economy that's crashed. And he campaigned on that. He said that he was going to rebuild the American economy from the bottom up. His words, not mine. He promised to get us out of both wars, Afghanistan and Iraq. He brought us out of Iraq, but he started another war in Syria that spilled into Iraq. And then since he had taken the troops out, he didn't have anyone there to protect him. He had to send the troops back. Left us in Afghanistan. The same foreign and economic policy as Bush kept Bush uh, defense secretaries and other members of the Bush cabinet in his administration. And he bailed out Wall Street after Wall Street had started, had caused the crash, he brings on uh, members from the Clinton administration who who built the structure that crashed. Larry Summers, Timothy Geithner brought them on. Then they uh, create in- economic policy where, first of all, they bail out Wall Street, forget about Main Street in this in this. Uh, rebuilding of the economy completely lies about rebuilding the economy from the bottom up lies about uh, you know uh, his foreign policy and what he was going to do sends more troops to Afghanistan what I'm trying to tell you is that he didn't change at all I mean, there was no change and he ran on change. And 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 when I say, you know, when I talk bad about Obama, you know, it's not because of some malicious hatred that I have for for him as as a person. Yes, I hate Obama, but I hate that he deceived us. I voted for Obama. You know, he was he was terrible. But yes, Bush was terrible. Bush at an average of eight um, well, um, an average of a trillion dollars a year for his eight years in office. So eight trillion dollars to the national debt is what Bush added. And then Obama, um, added for his eight years in office, um, a little bit more than a trillion dollars, um, in debt for his eight years in office. So by the time Trump uh, comes in, we're already over $20 trillion in debt. 
And then Trump adds an, over an average of a trillion dollars a year um, for his four years in office. We're at just about $31 trillion right now. Over 22 years in debt. And Obama said that he was going to change course. He was bad. But it's not just the debt. I mean, as this debt grows, it starts to compound and it just starts to become a, a snowball. And the Federal Reserve instituted uh, policy. Instead of handling this, this deficit spending and this debt, they instituted a policy to basically kick the can down the road. To sweep it under the rug, uh, you know, keep interest rates low artificially, so nobody really feels the pain of what's going on. People keep borrowing, people keep spending, and it's a crisis coming. Um, I talk a- about this, and I need to finish telling you this story um, about the housing crisis. I told you the first part of the story. I told you it's a three-part story. The Clinton administration, the Bush administration, the Obama administration. The Clinton administration provides the setup that is the deregulation under uh, Greenspan, Geithner, uh, Larry Summers, Robert Rubin in the Clinton administration. They uh, get rid of Glass-Steagall, tons of other deregulation. They uh, prevent Brooksley Bourne from regulating derivatives. They do the setup in the Clinton administration. The execution of the housing crisis happens during the Bush administration. And you know what? I'm going to that's what I'm going to do in the next podcast. I'm going to tell you the story of the setup. Um, and if you want to, I think the it's called this uh, or this the setup is the podcast that I've already done, and that's episode uh, seventy nine. Um, so if you're interested, I, I would go back and listen to episode seventy nine between uh, now and next week, and the podcast that I'm going to do next week. I'm going to do the execution, the execution of the housing crisis, and then what Obama does when he comes in, he does the cover up. He Obama's not able his justice. Department, when he comes in after this financial uh, crash, he's not his Justice Department doesn't bring a case on a single actor who caused the crisis. Why? Because the people who did this setup were in his administration. He brought Timothy Geithner on to run Treasury. His head economic advisor was Larry Summers. They did the setup. Of course, uh, Obama's Justice Department is not going to go after uh, any of the people who caused the crash. And, and the biggest, and I've, I've said this from the beginning, and, and I will continue to say this over and over again, the easiest case that Obama's Justice Department could have made was against the ratings companies, uh, Finch, Moody's, S&P, because these ratings companies, they're the ones who rated subprime securities AAA and, and told investors that, that these securities that you're buying are AAA when they were not AAA at all. And, but there were tons of other cases that his Justice Department, Justice Department could have made. They did make a single case because Obama was there to do the cover-up. So next week, we'll, we'll talk about the execution of the housing crisis. And then the week after that, I'll go into Obama and how they did the cover-up. Now, this is um, Art Laffer. Art Laffer uh, was an economic advisor under Ronald Reagan. And I want you to listen to what he says the interest rates should be considering 
the over $30 trillion debt that we have, what should the interest rates actually be? So, you know, you have a, um, you have a fair interest rate that is measuring the real state of the American economy. Take a listen to Art Laffer. Hold on a second, Art. So if, if we have inflation and, and, the, and the Fed's going to snuff inflation out, they have to raise rates. Are you saying that the Fed can actually land this plane, that they can raise rates, reduce inflation, but also not tip us into a recession? They can actually do this? No, they can't. Right. So, <laughs> not so, this Fed. So we have a recession I mean, on the horizon. Powell really doesn't understand this. Oh, my goodness gracious. You know, the Fed has led us into this problem. In order to stop inflation, Sean, they should have interest rates right now well above the rate of inflation, which may be a 7 8%, something like that. <clears throat> interest rates should be at the 11 12% range on the, on the near-term bonds. Wow. Three-year, five-year, wow. five-year bonds should be in that. 7 to 8% is what Laffer just said that would be a fair interest rate right now to really bring down inflation. <laughs> Seven, eight percent. I tell you what, uh, if you had interest rates to seven to eight percent, that'd really slow down the housing market. But maybe that's what needs to happen. You know, maybe that's what needs to happen because right now this is not a a real marketplace. It's all fake. And it's all being driven by the Federal Reserve and their policy. And the problem that he just talked about here is being able to land the plane, being able to stop this policy of keeping the interest rate artificially low to get the interest rate up to a fair value um, or fair marking of, of where the interest rate uh, should be, as, as Laffer just said, 7 to 8%. Landing the plane means doing that, <laughs> having a fair interest rate, but also not kicking off a recession in the slowing down of this, this policy to keep the interest rate artificially low. And they can't do that. The reason they can't do that is because the economy is not stable. The economy, the economy and the fundamentals of the American economy are not stable at all. It, it, it's like what it's like is I like to think about it as um, a, um, a handicapped person or maybe not a handicapped person, a person that uh, w- was healthy and functioning a, a healthy body, but maybe gets in an accident or has a disease that makes them handicapped and they need to use a wheelchair or crutches or uh, some type of um, other uh, foreign um, um medical device that that helps them operate and function that without this this medical device whatever it is a wheelchair uh, you know a uh, defibrillator that you carry around uh, with you you need that to function if you don't have that that medical device with you you can't function without that medical device that's that's the way i think about this in the economy because our economy cannot function without these crutches that the federal reserve has been putting on these training wheels this wheelchair that that we have been riding around in for the last 
uh, over like 12 years um, that if you take these crutches off, if you try to, to function and stand without your wheelchair, you can't. You can't function. You fall flat on your face. That's what the American economy will do without these training wheels. And, you know, I mean, the only way to test that is to take the training wheels off. <laughs> take, the, I mean, take the, throw down the crutches. Let's see. Let's see if you can function without them. I, I bet you can't. I bet as soon as the Fed starts raising rates anywhere near 7 to 8% that this country is going to go into recession. Take a listen to more of Art Laffer here which may be a 7 8% something like that <clears throat> interest rates should be at the 11 12% range on the on the near term bonds let's say 3 year 5 year 10 year bonds should be in that in order to be able to be able to get rid of inflation they're not doing anything that i can see that would really cause the inflation rate to slow down yeah. now it may slow down it's incremental it's but there's nothing they're doing that would precipitate a slower rate of inflation. And, and the worse it gets, the bigger the downturn's gonna have to be to bring us back. So, or not to go too much in the weeds, but is the real problem here the Fed's dual mandate to maximize employment, but also have stable prices? So to have stable prices is one thing, but if they're focused on just employment, you can see runaway inflation. Who gave the Fed that mandate? I mean, the Fed's, the, who gave the Fed that mandate? That the Fed is responsible for unemployment and making sure that the country's at full employment. That's the Fed mandate. It's crazy. Mandate to man- I mean, the, uh, and, and prices and, and, uh, and monitoring pricing. I mean, that's more of a Fed mandate than, than uh, caring about unemployment. I mean, pricing. I mean, the, the flow of, uh, of, currency and the moderation of the, of the currency is what the fed is that's their mandate is to uh manage the flow of currency and set the interest rate now, unemployment pricing that i i don't really see that as a fed mandate but oh well lower rate of inflation and and the worse it gets the bigger the downturn is going to have to be to bring us back so or not to go too much in the weeds but is the real problem here the Fed's dual mandate to maximize employment but also have stable prices? So to have stable prices is one thing, but if they're focused on just employment, you can see runaway inflation, even though we have an unemployment rate at 4%. How do they accomplish both of those things with the dual mandate? It's almost impossible, right? No, I, I don't think they have a problem with the dual mandate. I don't think. If they had stable prices, just imagine for a moment, Sean, that we knew the prices were going to be the same for the next 20 years so that any dollar's worth today would be what it's worth five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. That would be very good for business. It'd be very Possibly. good for the economy. Inflation is not good for the economy. It doesn't help employment, and it hurts the economy long term. So the better the job they do on inflation, the better the job they're going to do on the economy as well. Stable prices is a benefit for the economy, not something that hurts it. Nope. And they don't understand how to get stable prices. So here, that, I'm, now I'm going, to, I'm going to go on a limb here, and I'm going to disagree with the great Art Laffer. Are you ready for this? That's because, okay. So on, sure. financial, on, on the Financial Service Committee, when I was in Congress, um, the Fed would always focus on maximizing employment. And we we're like, but you're printing and borrowing and spending, and eventually that's going to lead to inflation. They're like, no, no, no. We really care about employment. And here you have 
um, the, the devil of low employment, yes, but rising, you know, rising prices. I don't think they can navigate those two things at the same time. I think you can say focus on focus on inflation, focus on stable pricing. And the consequence of that is probably going to be low unemployment. Yeah, well, I think they focus on, on stabilizing inflation. It will be low unemployment. I think that's exactly what I was trying to say. But the trouble is these guys think printing money creates jobs, and it doesn't. It doesn't. If you look at the participation... They agree on that. They agree on printing money doesn't create jobs. <laughs> dramatically, if you look at the economy, it's not doing well at all. It really isn't, Sean. And I think when you were in the Congress, you were completely right. The Fed doesn't know this and doesn't know how to stop inflation, and it doesn't know how to create employment. Low inflation is good for the economy. It's good for purchasers. It's good for everything, including the two dual mandate of low unemployment and stable prices. I think they should be able to accomplish that, but they're not showing any signs of doing what they need to do to bring back that stable prices and low unemployment. So I don't think they can. I don't think they can. And um, I mean, I think they were in for a crisis, a a serious crisis. And uh, let's talk more about what's going on with the uh, food shortages that we're expecting. Remember the uh, president of the United States played the clip in the last podcast has uh, promised food shortages because of Russia invading uh, Ukraine. And uh, since the last podcast, I did uh, find out that there is something to Russia invading Ukraine uh, why uh, food shortages can be uh, expected. And um, it doesn't have anything to do with the sanctions or per se. I think that I guess the sanctions do have because as uh, the United States is sanctioning Russia, Russia is also in turn sanctioning these other countries. And you may think to yourself, well, what does Russia have uh, to sanction? Well, first of all, uh, they could sanction, you know, their oil and gas, which they're not. They're actually selling it to the European countries who are I'm, I'm using air quotes, can't see me, but air quotes who are sanctioning Russia. Um, they're not really sanctioning Russia because they're buying their oil and gas. Um, so um, Russia, though, is sanctioning other. They put out a whole list of sanctions that uh, of people that they were sanctioning. The United States are sanctioning the United States, um, and uh, because the United States isn't buying their oil anymore, so Russia says, "All right, you're not buying our oil. You don't get any of our fertilizer." <laughs> Fertilizer. I, I had no idea what the the fertilizer game was all about, and this is just another card that uh, Putin holds. And this is why people are really anticipating food shortages because they're anticipating fertilizer shortages, and this is already taking place. Uh, take a listen to this clip. CEO and president of fertilizer manufacturer CF Industries, which is one of the best performing stocks of the year. Tony, it's good to have you here. How bad is the global shortage of fertilizer right now? Sarah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, it is uh, a huge problem. The, the globe is very tight fertilizer. It's a confluence of factors. Um, unprecedented demand coupled with a huge fall off in supply availability only just exacerbated by the war in Ukraine 
and what's going on with uh, exports coming out of, of Russia and Ukraine. So we are. What are really you doing a, about it? How do you ramp well, up to, to help meet that demand? So nitrogen production is uh, very much large um, refineries, chemical plants. We run those plants 24 7, 365. There are very few incremental tons that we can make. We have pushed out some maintenance activities. We have added some logistics capabilities, some vessels and, and rail cars, but there's no new tons to make. It's just a matter of trying to get them as quickly as we can into the marketplace. As I understand, it takes natural gas to produce fertilizer, something that you have access to, unlike some of your international competitors, pretty cheaply. So how much of Russia's got it pretty cheap. For you? So uh, being a North American producer is huge for us. Uh, we pay somewhere in the neighborhood of five to six dollars per MMBTU of, of natural gas. Europe is currently paying about thirty five to thirty eight dollars per MMBTU. And that's multiplied by thirty five just to get to one ton of ammonia multiplied by 10 million tons, um, which is what we produce annually. So that is um, the huge spread between low cost production and high cost. And that's one of the reasons why fertilizer price is what it is. It's not only a lack of availability, but the high cost producers are very high cost. So what, what's going to happen, Tony, with, with global food supply? There are worries about shortages, about famines and, and a real crisis. What's your perspective? Yeah, so we are we are absolutely facing a, a problem of catastrophic catastrophic proportion here. Uh, catastrophic. That means a ca- ca- catastrophe. A catastrophe is on the rise, and that's what this guy just Famines said. Famines and, and a real crisis. What's your perspective? Yeah, so we are we are absolutely facing a, a problem of catastrophic catastrophic proportion here. Um, not only is the issue the word catastrophic catastrophe of, of nutrients is and inputs, a tough word, but even. also Russia and yeah, so we are we are absolutely facing a, a problem of catastrophic catastrophic proportion here. Catastrophic. That's a catastrophe is what we're facing. And that's coming. Is what we're facing a, a problem of catastrophic catastrophic proportion here. Um, not only is the issue lack of availability and affordability of, of nutrients and inputs, but also Russia and Ukraine have historically exported about 30% of global wheat trade and 20% of global corn trade. And there's stocks that are not getting out of the market because the Black Sea is closed. And we do not expect Ukraine to plant a normal crop next year due to damage of fuel depots, infrastructure, farm equipment, and dislocation of people. So take a very tight food situation and just multiply it tenfold by a lack of production coming out of the world. This is uh, um, a, uh, a problem of epic proportion. Is there, is, do you have any solutions? Is there anything government can do? We saw yeah, them government. Move, for instance. Government's the reason that we're in this problem. Government caused this. That's 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 the reason that we're dealing with this because uh, of uh, government. A uh, a problem of epic proportion. Is there? Is, do you have any solutions? Is there anything government can do? We saw them make a move, for instance, to try to low, lower oil prices and gas prices today. I love this guy's answer right here because she's asking what government can do. This is what government can do, honey. Tell Joe Biden to do this. Petroleum reserve. What what can be done with this issue? Well, we need to uh, bring about a um, peaceful ceasefire as quickly as possible. And a peaceful ceasefire as soon as possible. 
That's what can be done. That's what you can do, Joe Biden and other world leaders, if you want to head off this catastrophe of a food crisis. You can negotiate a peaceful ceasefire in Ukraine. Stop sending them more weapons and encouraging them to keep up the fight. Instead of doing that, Joe Biden, why don't you encourage them to negotiate a peaceful ceasefire and uh, and encourage Ukraine to to meet the very reasonable terms that Russia has laid out and head this off because it's a catastrophe waiting to happen. It's already a catastrophe in many parts of the world in peru um for example it's a catastrophe taking place right now take a listen to what's going on in peru for days chaos in peru roadblocks on fire as protesters throw rocks and sticks at police authorities shooting tear gas into crowds as they march towards the legislative palace in lima Growing tension as President Pedro Castillo imposed a curfew Tuesday to quell recent anti-government protests over rising gas and food prices. Rising gas and food prices. That's the issue that they're protesting. A la calma, a la serenidad. La protesta social es un derecho constitucional. Less than 24 hours later, amid escalating manifestations, that curfew dropped. Cansados, we're tired of this. That's what she said. The government confirming at least four people have died, three of them over the weekend in the city of Huancayo, inland where protests began. La policía ha manejado con mucho tino para evitar costo social. Sin embargo, eh, se ha producido eh, tres muertes, pero no por la policía. The outrage over the government's response to protests, another hit for the man who came in promising economic stability and was just elected last June. In less than a year in office, he's already faced two impeachments. President Castillo's curfew and handling of the deadly protests raising concerns about rights violations. The country's national coordinator for human rights saying the state of emergency violates Peruvians' rights and accusing the national police of using disproportionate force against protesters. So this goes back to the podcast I did a few weeks ago talking about um, all of the global protests in 2019 and they were interrupted by COVID-19 and now... Now that, uh, well, I thought we were at, at on the tail end of COVID-19 and that we were pretty much done with that, but they're rolling COVID-19 back again. And the protests, the global protests are starting again because of rising food uh, and fuel costs in Peru, in Sri Lanka. Uh, take a listen to what's going on in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is facing its most serious economic and political crisis in decades, with protests on the streets and officials resigning and being replaced so quickly, we're not sure how long the next finance minister will stick around because the new appointee lasted just a day. People are struggling to get the basics from food to fuel. Some observers say the poorest may soon face starvation. So that's Sri Lanka. You have this going on in in, um, other parts of the world, but it's not just the developing world. Um, You have this going on in, uh, in the first world in uh, EU countries, in France. 
people are dealing with high prices, inflation, food shortages, fuel shortages. Um, um, you know, you have political casualties going on in, in all these other places, but, uh, you have the potential of a political casualty, the first political casualty in the first world, uh, being the president of France, Macron, being <laughs> defeated. And there's a real chance of this. Um, he uh, ran against uh, Marie Le Pen when he won uh, the election the first time. And uh, Marie Le Pen is running again. Um, if you don't know who Marie Le Pen is, her father was the president of uh, France at one time. They, they call her this far right Trump uh, type of candidate because uh, she does um, represent a very populist movement that is going on in France and uh, people dealing with um, high prices and uh, shortages there. Um, it, they're really threatening Macron in France. So it's not just happening in these developing parts of the world, Sri Lanka, uh, Peru. It's happening in, in France. It will be happening here in the United States if Joe Biden doesn't do what the CEO of the fertilizer company that we just listened to uh, suggested and negotiate a ceasefire. This is going to be happening all over the world. And uh, this has the potential to destabilize uh, many parts of the world. Uh, take a listen to this clip about uh, France, and so you can see that it's not just the developing uh, world. Take a listen. Smiling under the sun and away from his security meetings at the Elysee Palace, Emmanuel Macron hit the campaign trail, visiting a school in Dijon. <laughs> the war in Ukraine gave Macron a strong edge earlier on. But his credentials as a leader in a time of crisis are being overshadowed by people's main concern today, the cost of living. Despite the government's efforts to curb inflation, frustration keeps growing as rising prices bite households. And that's chipping away at Macron's popularity. He's still the front-runner, but the gap between him and his closest rival, Marine Le Pen, has narrowed in the last couple of weeks. Far-left candidate Jean-Luc Mélenchon is also slowly surging in opinion polls. So this is going to be the first real test uh, to see um, if Macron is going to be able to get re-elected uh, amidst the crisis of food shortages, fuel shortages, inflation that are going on in France. And uh, we'll see what happens. He's leading in the polls. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Macron wins re-election, but um, he is in—he's in a fight right now uh, for re-election. This is the same thing that's going to happen to Democrats here in the United States in November. Um, they're going to be uh, in a fight. And a lot of people are predicting that they're going to lose the House of Representatives. They really only have to lose five seats to lose the House of Representatives. It's 50-50 in the Senate. So this this crisis, it is going to be a huge political test for a lot of world leaders. And uh, there's going to be unrest and protests like we're going on in uh, Peru and in Sri Lanka and in other places, this is going to be a huge catastrophe 
like the CEO of the fertilizer company, uh, said if these world leaders are not able to head this off. And from what it seems, they're not even trying to head it off. Um, Joe Biden's not even talking about uh, negotiating a ceasefire and encouraging uh, Ukraine to meet the terms that Russia has laid out to to negotiate a ceasefire. Nothing like that's even taking place. So it makes you wonder if these people are if they want this to happen, if they want this crash to happen, if they are um if they are uh intentionally doing this and 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 bringing about these crises for some other grand objective uh who knows what uh that could be but um i know that um the democrats are still in the united states are still and it's not only in the united states it's uh globally this uh great reset and um you know using climate change as a um, issue to reshape the world economy and um, um, wean people off of fossil fuels for uh, climate change. Maybe that's uh, the reason that these people are um, are you know trying to bring about this this economic change, global economic change. Maybe that's the reason, but it it sure seems like these people want this to happen because if they didn't want it, it to happen, they would be doing something to head this off and to, you know, uh, first of all um, and foremost, negotiate a ceasefire in Ukraine to stop what is happening there. And even if you do that, um, I, I mean, like I said, here in the United States, we were dealing with 7.5% inflation before Russia invaded Ukraine. So even if you're able to, to right now negotiate a ceasefire and end that conflict in, in Ukraine, I still don't know if you would be able to head off the catastrophe that is coming, but it's coming and it's coming, um, globally. For everyone, no one is going to uh, be able to get out of this catastrophe when it comes, except the ultra elite and uh, the people who um, have the means to not be affected by this. But everybody else is going to be affected by this. And part of me, um, a large part of me, um, thinks that this is intentional. This is something that they want uh, to happen and they want it to happen so um, they can bring about the Great Reset. I talked about the Great Reset and I even did a podcast about the Great Reset um, over a year ago and I believe that COVID-19 was going to be the catalyst to bring about this great reset and was going to be used and like I said they are bringing COVID-19 back um, you know we thought that we were done but we're not done um, you have all of these and it's really interesting that you have all these Democrats Barack Obama, Jen Psaki um, um, uh, Nancy Pelosi 
all these Democrats are testing positive for COVID now. I haven't, I haven't heard of one Republican in uh, Congress and or in Washington because all these people in Washington are testing positive for COVID and they all just happen to be Democrats. I haven't heard of one single Republican, prominent Republican, uh, that has tested positive. It's really that's really interesting. But uh, they're bringing COVID back. COVID's not gone. Um, a lot of people are speculating that they're bringing it back for the election in uh, November. Uh, that's one way <laughs> to make sure that these these crises of inflation and food and fuel shortages. That's one way to ensure that they don't affect you politically is if you use COVID to um, have the mail-in ballots again. That way you can make sure <laughs> that uh, that these, these issues don't affect you politically if you're Democrats. And, you know, that's conspiratorial. Who knows if that is what the plan is. But I do know this. I know that a bunch of Democrats are uh, all of a sudden testing positive for COVID and it and they're bringing uh, COVID back the mask mandates in, in places and. This is really interesting. So you're going to um, have COVID uh, uh, coming back, uh, another resurgence of, of, of COVID this summer, along with the food and, and fuel shortages. This is going to be very interesting, very interesting indeed. Well, um, I will be again doing the uh, podcast next week. Um, pre-recording it. And what I will be doing is the uh, podcast on the execution of the financial crisis. And if you want to uh, go back and listen to the first part of uh, that podcast that I did, uh, episode 79, the setup, um, listen to the setup uh, again, and then we will talk about the execution of the housing crisis uh, next week. And then um, depending on how I'm feeling um, after my surgery, if I'm able to uh, get the episode out the following week, we will talk about the cover up of the financial crisis under the Obama administration. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, got so much going on right now, but I will be back next week. It's going to be an, uh, I'll probably put it out, um, on Monday night because I have to be at the hospital on, uh, Tuesday morning early, but, uh, you guys look out for episode 114 and um we'll see you guys next time <laughs>